Hello, this is Monica Michelle with Explicitly Sick for the Invisible Network and Podcast Network. I had the incredible happy luck of um, going live on Instagram and uh, Max Feinstein was kind enough to go live with me and we had a great chat. It was so great. I decided to ask him to continue it for two hours. Um, completely kidnapped the poor man. Uh, we talked about so much. He's an incredible singer songwriter. Um, a, uh, a fantastic guitarist um, and an absolute joy to talk to. We talked about vulnerability and uh, the medical establishment, anger um, when you're chronically ill as a child. We talked about creativity. I don't think there's much we didn't talk about. I think we even got to Annie DeFranco and Tori Amos. So we covered so much um, from the art side of chronic illness to the emotional side to dealing with COVID um, life while you are an artist and someone who's creative. Uh, please enjoy this episode and head over to the show notes. Uh, Max's music is absolutely amazing and I will have a link to get right to his website and his songs. So thank you so much. If you haven't yet, please hit subscribe to Explicitly Sick and um, go check out the rest of the network. We have some great podcast hosts. You're right. Crossing fingers. I've I've I've, I've dislocated by pointing at things. <laughs> that was interesting to explain to someone when like the whole hand was like out of the wrist. I was like, um, never mind. So you go that way. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure uh, I'm sure you've had to ask for assistance from people who had no idea what you were and there wasn't exactly time to explain it's um it's always a I, I used to be uncomfortable now I just I have like a very sort of um mischievous sense of humor so I I tend to mess with people if I feel like they would take it well I, I agree you, it's kind of like you turn the disorder into a bit of a sideshow um, yeah yeah of, you know it's it's almost like having chicken for every meal you wake up yep still the same disorder um, <laughs> you find a way to entertain yourself but also uh it, it does become i relate so heavily to that uh it becomes a, a, an effort to try and put other people at ease because uh even somebody like myself who has his own disorder to contend with can't fully comprehend yours uh let alone what the able-bodied uh, must think of both of us uh, <laughs> It's, you know, it really depends on the person, but I, even well-meaning people, I don't like the, the look of, like, I've just destroyed their day. Oh. If I try to explain my disorder to them, like, I have destroyed their entire worldview that really bad things can happen to a body. Like, I hate having to, like, talk them down from depression. Is somebody in adulthood truly that naive? Have, has that... <laughs> I had to talk my male lady down from, like... Uh a mental breakdown because, and I usually don't deal because standing hurts. And I was with my cane and she was like, oh, I hope you feel better. Nine times out of 10, I say, thank you. And I move on. I don't know what was wrong with me that day, but I was like, yeah, this doesn't get better. This is a genetic disorder. And she just lost her mind. And like, she wanted to understand. And I was like, okay, um, my joints don't work. The I their bones fall out and I have a heart condition and I pass out all the time so no this is not a get better thing but thank you and like as I'm explaining this like the the sane Monica off to the side you know like when there's like a drunk person and the sane person's up here it was very yeah like the sane Monica was over there going why did you start this what did you think was gonna happen <laughs> and there's no turning it off now we're nope, already in it in. 
And I was there for about a half hour trying to like make her feel better because she could not process that a human body could just dislocate. And you're just watching this woman's soul kind of darken from the inside out. And it wasn't even funny, which was the bad part. Because usually, like, if I'm going to create chaos, it's to do a punchline. Like, it's just too yep. funny to resist. Like, I tried out my wheelchair for the first time, and there was a woman there at a bookstore, and she looked at the book in my lap, and she looked at me, and she goes, you're going to love it so much you'll never stand up again. <laughs> like, oh, we're having fun. We're <laughs> playing. Oh, no. Oh, that is delicious. That is, that is, those, those moments when, when you get the people who can rally behind you, which is something I, I'm grateful that I found in, in the arts community that I've worked in, because artists, as you know, are naturally curious people. I, I can't imagine uh, a quality artist who doesn't have curiosity to them. I'd love to meet them. That'd just probably be pure technique, but. I can't even imagine. It's, it's, uh, as a, before COVID, I, I was, I, I toured, I, I was an active touring musician. I'd go out for at the very least like half a month to, to a month and a half a year. Uh, and before COVID I had something like 65 to 75 dates booked as a sideman. Um, and as a result of, you know, living in a metal capsule with people at a time for stretches, it, it becomes important to let them know kind of what shit is about uh even if it never rears its head because at the very least i should do the polite thing and say hey if y'all are squeamish around needles uh don't look at me for about 15 minutes uh when i tell you like you know because that's how it, hemophilia is is treated is uh for a long time i was treated intravenously so i was giving myself a venipuncture i was putting needles in my veins and injecting medicine to kind of make things work and i was doing it on a prophylactic regimen so i i was one of those things where you know should something happen i i would be able to at least tell them what to do if i couldn't tell someone else what to do uh thankfully the worst things you know like i, I never fully made it anyone's problem yet you know it never that that's a fear that is a concern is is uh that it should get to the point where uh, it becomes a prohibitive thing in the middle of, of the agenda and needs to be dealt with in a more uh, serious way than, okay, put Sparky to the side and, uh, and let him stick a needle in his arm and he'll be fine eventually sort of deal. Um, you know, the worst that's happened is with hemophilia, I don't know if it's the same for you uh, since we both have disorders that uh, impact our joints. Um, with hemophilia, there is such a thing as a target joint. Target joints being the ones that you most habitually uh, damage or bleed into. So for me as a guitar player, it became my elbow. So there have been shows that I played in which um, I had uh, an elbow bleed. And um, what an elbow bleed typically looks like is a restricted range of motion. Uh, so, you know, if I can extend, thankfully, my elbow, you know, full extension, let's call that 180-ish degrees. Uh, there have been shows I've played where my extension might have been 120 degrees, and um, that that is a considerable amount of pain to be in um, in those moments because it's not just the uh, it's not just the elbow itself; it's now the um, you know this whole carpal area having the forearm having to um, compensate and support yeah. 
that or and spasm that, like that's a massive spasm through the the forearm if, if all of these extra muscle groups have to compensate the shoulder like the trap the scap the rotator uh and and it's something that i've sort of began to appreciate how to deal with um one thing we don't talk about in our community a lot we talk about rice of course rest ice compression elevation which uh there's some merit to but in other ways i hate since arthritis kicked in, um, being I, 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 I'm highly resentful of being sedentary for any reason. <laughs> yes, I hear that. But uh, I, I began maybe last year uh, something of a yoga regimen. I'm not incredibly faithful to it, but I had noticed I had done it at the end. Uh, basically, I woke up to an elbow bleed, which is something that would happen to me sometimes, that I would be on a medicine that had a kind of a eight hour half-life so I would get my factor levels factor eight is the one I'm missing we all have a number of those and in the perfectly uh, ideal human body uh, we have a number of clotting and anti-clotting factors that are perfectly balanced uh, you know if we are damaged we have the clotting factors that tell us you know you know let's let's deal with this let's let's stop the bleeding and then we have the anti-clotting factors that say all right guys shut that shit down we don't need an embolism like you know and if you have an imbalance in one way, you have a hemophilic episode. And if you have an imbalance in the other way, you have, you know, a thrombophilic episode. And so uh, the medicine that I was injecting at the time uh, was just kind of a, a factor replacement that would bring my body levels up to about 90% of what it should have. My resting level is 1% uh, of, of that factor. And uh, as a result, uh, on some days when it was the day of an injection, I'm, I might be prone if I had had a strenuous day to wake up to an injury. And, and that is all to say that I did my injection. I decided to go to the scheduled yoga class. And uh, by the end of the class, I had essentially my full range of motion back. It was hell on earth to do. But at the same time, I'm, I, one of my goals in the community that I'm in is, is to try and bring yoga, specifically the yin practice, because it's a less complicated, less mm. one. Um, where you simply hold poses and kind of conk out on the floor. It's awesome. It's, it's, it's lazy yoga, but I mean, it isn't lazy by any stretch, but, um, har har, I'm just punning all over, but, um, it, it's one of those things where, uh, we don't talk about, uh, kind of getting moving again. We talk about bringing the swelling down in the community. We talk about, uh, compression. We talk about icing, of course, which, as a kid, just again, just bringing it up kind of brings a little bit of that bile to the back of my throat because it was such a resentful thing. Um, but it's sort of a goal of mine is to, to and others share it with me to bring that um, more to the forefront because I feel like we, it's something that could be used to do more for ourselves. And it's always like that, um, am I going to make it worse? Am I going to make it better? Do I have to make it worse to make it better? Like, and the, the Ehlers-Danlos community is so much drama around movement exercise and bracing and wheelchairs and it's just like everyone seems to have very intense opinions and <laughs> there's really no right answer but there i think movement is a part of the puzzle i i always feel worse if i don't at least try to move yeah it's it's sort of like if you're in pain you're gonna be in the, the way i've come to accept it is that i'm essentially always going to be in one form of pain or another yeah at this point because of arthritis um 
at some other points in my life, perhaps actively uh, agitated by hemophilia. Uh, perhaps it's mental and existential distress. We, these are all kinds of pain. Uh, I'd rather be uh, in motion. I'd rather, at least for me, uh, rather be in pain and um, in motion rather than in pain and, and eventually stiff, which becomes its own kind of pain that I, I find easier to resent myself for. And your job is motion. It is. Um, before COVID, one of the other jobs I would use was, uh, I would have would be um, sort of corporate audio or stagehand work, which is incredibly physically intensive. Uh, and I, I do not miss that. Thankfully, very little injuries happen to me in those cases. But um, yeah, I, I've sort of designed my life to, uh, to try and maintain a level of activity. Uh, and part of that hit me in a new perspective earlier this year. I was in D.C. Um, in February, just when the coronavirus was becoming a bigger blip on the news radar. Uh, we have, the Bleeding Disorder community has our National Day of Advocacy, where uh, delegates, where members of the community from, I think we had something like 45 states at least, and about 500 people converged onto Capitol Hill to speak with our representatives uh, to discuss some legislator, uh, legislation. And uh, it dawned on me there uh, because of course living with a chronic disorder is gonna be highly insular no matter how good your community is. It dawned on me just how much more capable in some ways than, that, that, uh, that I was uh, than even people much younger than me who had access to uh, higher quality care earlier in their lives that mm. I'm used to walking something like five, six, seven miles a day if I can help it. Uh, I love to walk. It is my, um, it, is, it is my peace. It is my meditation. It is, it is how I get my head straight. And, um, I was surrounded by people who couldn't manage a block in some cases. There's a, a young man, um, a young man, I don't recall if he was even a teenager, uh, when I met him who, has uh, what's called an inhibitor. And an inhibitor is essentially a response from the body, uh, almost like an immunal response that uh, diminishes the efficacy of the medicine, which means it has to be sort of treated with more of a cocktail of a medicine rather than uh, with a singular drug, which has been my privilege uh, of my lifetime. I never developed an inhibitor. Um, and I've never really had any poor side effects to my medication, which is, you know, you don't hear that. No. I've never heard that. I like this is the unicorn. A little, a, a little bit. I, I am. It took me a while to appreciate that because even, even in a jokey way, I'll, I, I will joke and say that my body is uh, sort of a disaster. Um, and my sister kind of has, you know, God, I love her to death. She's had to put up with me my whole life and that's kind of like being next to uh, a bomb that could go off at any moment <laughs> okay younger I, or older she's older she is four years my senior um oh. she's about to have her first child too which is um i'm i'm so excited uh thankfully whatever this is this does not go she has none of it in her um hemophilia is passed along the x chromosome and uh she was not a carrier uh, therefore, whatever uh, child comes out of her will not, uh, unless spontaneously mutated, have any uh, of this in them, which I'm grateful for because it, it 
for lack of better term, fucked my shit up uh, mentally. <laughs> and I was a very angry kid. I was angry at, at the world, as as um, as as one might say. I, I kind of lived in open defiance of existence. How much did you have to change childhood activities because of what you were dealing with? Um, well, I never joined a football team. Um, that sounds probably about fair. <laughs> in all honesty, I can't say terribly much was modified. I was able to, by and large, participate in, though not very well, uh, things like soccer and basketball. Uh, it was nice to be included, but I was also, on, on top of having uh, incompetent blood, I am also uh, short. So, yeah, I was always a short, kind of scrawny kid, so I was not particularly athletic. I, I did a lot of swimming, and I did a lot of roughhousing because I had this sort of chip on my shoulder because of of hemophilia, you kind of feel this, over, I felt this need to overcompensate and demonstrate ways I, I mean, I, I wasn't fragile. Um, and then you're just angry at the world, so you're just kind of like, okay, motherfucker, make my day, let's kick some ass. Like, I wasn't a good fighter, but I was always looking to pick fights. I, I, I'm curious how much of that is like hemophilia, and I, I, I'm a mom of a boy and a girl, and I am constantly shocked because they were not raised that different from each other on how anger is different in each of them and how much is very different, especially as they are teenagers now and like this constant undercurrent. And is that like a, a testosterone thing or is that just, or is that like, I, I, I have no idea. <laughs> Well, that's kind of the uh, that's kind of the wormhole. There is it. Is it my blood? Or is it me? Um, I was always a fairly emotional kid. I was always uh, trying to figure out words. I had a lot of words. Um, my father was an editor. There was a lot of NPR in my house. My parents spoke with a big vocabulary and. I was kind of a good mimic, and I kind of had this natural performative entertainer side to me that, in retrospect, may have led people to believe I was more aware of what I was saying or doing than I was. I may have been more sort of parroting at the time, and um, may have been also doing some sort of psychological or emotional ballistics in the sense of just saying or doing some shit and seeing how people would respond out of curiosity. So uh, it, it got complicated and it got confusing in places because there were there were a lot of misunderstood intentions. There was a lot of uh, situations where uh, I did not appreciate perhaps the ramifications of what I might do or what I might say. I might have been just looking for the magic words that made me feel better. And mm -hmm. in doing that, a, not appreciating the, the kind of groundwork that is actually required to feel better, but B, having it backfire tremendously on many occasions. Uh, and, and you may be the first person that I've, I've kind of articulated that to in, in such a way, but I, I definitely had a lot of rage at my disorder. I had a lot of um, sort of self-loathing. I had a lot of self-pity. And there were also other sort of developmental issues that I contended with that I freaked the hell out on because wasn't this one enough? Like, you know, <laughs> yes. 
and, and you know there was a lot of OT and and stuff. Uh, my penmanship became a stickler for people. My anxiety in class, uh, you know, focus and stuff like that. And I used to be what I've come to realize is a complete nightmare to people who were just trying to do their jobs, be it uh, somebody working in occupational therapy, be it uh, a doctor trying to help me uh, with the hemophilia. There, there was trauma. There was definitely trauma. And for me, it's kind of hard to divorce it from the rage other than uh, appreciating that I can be kind of a hothead as, as a human being as well. I'm always curious about like those of us who dealt with um, the medical establishment as kids, like where we were poked and prodded and surgeries and pain. And we didn't have that vocabulary or that like awareness of like, this is for our own good <laughs> or maybe not. But I, I think that we all have like this weird common thread of being like the alien or the human on the alien spaceship getting poked and prodded and not getting it. <laughs> It's something that I've come to liken to uh, being a caged animal. It's something mm. um, eventually I've come to appreciate, and I, I try not to say this. I, I appreciate that it can sound dramatic or hyperbolic, but uh, the, the trauma I have is almost akin to what a rape survivor has because there was a lot of restraint, mm -hmm. a lot of um, penetration, albeit, you know, with it was just venipuncture, but... You know, when you are being held down against your will and people are actively doing things to your body. Yeah. And you are in this huge amygdalic response. You are screaming yourself hoarse. You are attacking people. You at one point grabbed the needle from the doctor and threatened him with it. Because <laughs> well, you were a spitfire. <laughs> um, that's fascinating. I actually have, I'm a sexual assault, rape survivor, multiple, um, lots of history there. And I never put those two together on how scary that was to be held down and to have needles pushed through my spine and all the other things like that's that was quite a revelation thank you i i hadn't put those two things together but i couldn't tell i couldn't figure out why i'd have massive panic attacks every time i would like they would hold the arm down or i had to have a spinal thing where they like they had to have you like lay on your stomach and they like, push a needle through your spine like it was yeah, but not as funny <laughs> it, it's such a it sucks and and then you end up as you get slightly more self-aware you end up having to sort of sit in it. You, mm. you, you have these responses where you weren't old enough to control yourself. And uh, technically at age 32, I still don't necessarily feel I am old enough to control myself sometimes because of, of that kind of... We're, we're, I'm just starting to unpack this in the last year because I switched from an intravenous drug to a sub-Q. Okay. Which meant that I actively removed a trigger from my life for the first time. In How's that feeling for you? Do you feel like there's like a massive difference not having that trigger every day? Yes, uh, it, it is. It, I don't have to worry about the rocket science of, of injections because, uh, I mean, I don't have to tell you what it's like when 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 they miss a blood draw and they have to dig around. Like I don't have to tell. I don't even have to tell an ordinary person how much that sucks that's that's where the common ground is you know you know what it's like when you give blood and they can't find anything or when they have to take the blood and do tests and they can't find one and they just keep digging keep poking that that is um that is that was life in, in a year i would have had more accesses to my veins than most people would have in their lifetime if you're counting 
let's say three times a week by 52 weeks like Jesus. <laughs> yeah i mean that's that's just life um and i would say that you know i do live in in a far less uh, persistent state of agitation at the least uh, for a long time, that needle would be kind of the impossible task. It might keep me from leaving my house on time because I'm procrastinating it. I may even just forego it till the next day because, uh, and, and then that might weigh on the conscience. One of the what I what I want to double back to is um, this sort of nuanced uh, panic because there was another thought in there. Uh, again, as I became more self-aware, it was one of those things where. I would realize how bad this was, how bad I was behaving, how much I couldn't stop it. And that would sort of become its own, kind of like you said about how sober, you know, mm -hmm. you is off to the side almost with a bird's eye view of what's going on and, and there's no way to stop this now. It's like, you know, that switch is flipped, the ride is gonna happen. <laughs> um, yeah. We're not sure where it is. And even if we put the brakes on it now, there's still the rest of it to contend with. And, and so, you know, there, there was the car ride home with the people I just put through hell. And there was this, you know, with my mother, especially with my sister, with my father, this sadness, this absolute sadness that, that this had just happened to me, but also this completely, I mean, I've come to appreciate it now as regret, but at the time, I don't think I knew that's what it was. But the appreciation for what I had just put my loved ones through mm. and that was kind of a serialized occurrence of my life I got better as I got older because there was um, topical lidocaine that would help with the the sort of little bit but mm. psychologically it still sucked and even after a point I, I would stop putting up with uh, people poking and prodding at me even if it even if I still needed that stuff to go into my body it became eventually like no no we're fucking done here we're done you suck like so are the tattoos a part of the marking of all this because i'm covered neck to tailbone um i'm working on getting the arms completely covered i hate needles i i have the veins the size of an infant's and nurses like freak out when they see my arms they're like nope mm -mm, out I'm tattooed because it's like the only thing on my body I got to actually have a say over and I marked it with like moments. Is that what you were doing? Like, I'm always so curious about all of us who are like, no one needles, but yes, we're going to tattoo. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, for me, I, it's spiritually, it is absolutely a matter of reclamation. Absolutely. It is me having some degree of control over my body, uh, and, and having something that, for one thing, to me, I, I always thought about tattoos as a rock musician as sort of the suit and tie. It, it, it was like I wanted to have them, I wanted to kind of look the part. The tattoos are less um, less about, it depends. They're, they're, they're sometimes arbitrary, sometimes not. Um, I have some sort of ruling about mine. I don't know if you have parameters for yourself about um, what you'll get on you like I don't necessarily want to put words though my first uh my first tattoo is is this sort of medic alert yep um, I was gonna ask it <laughs> and and then a hemophilia written above it which I got last year uh that those will be the only words uh the other the other thing for me is colors I do not prefer to do colors now is this Cthulhu or is this uh octopus octopus okay uh, so uh, 
this is uh, my my uh, my favorite band in the world is the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Okay. And my favorite guitarist in the world is John Frusciante of the Chili Peppers, and he has uh, this very same tattoo. And after my uh, diagnosis of arthritis in my arm, um, my musculature uh, became atrophied. I, I tried to stabilize by mobile by immobilizing. And at one point, when my wife and I first started dating nine years ago, not only uh, did I have to guide my arm by the wrist to sign the check at the restaurant, like that was about as bad as that was, but I could, uh, you know, wrap my fingers around this area and, and they would touch. And it was kind of like I would wear long sleeves in the summer a little bit. It was, so I wanted to have something to look at that would inspire me, that would make me feel. I love that. Yeah, I um I was like the self harm girl, so I I covered my arms with like tattoos after I stopped hurting myself, and um I wasn't gonna do uh I, I as far as parameters like I have words on me I have a um, memorial stuff so that's my aunt um who died and it's what my mom said at her funeral which was that she lived with purpose and possibility. And I put a little paper airplane with it. And then my uncle just died. So I got his red bike on um, with Yosemite Mountains behind it. Um, it's a, it has his initials on it. Um, I really hate how the guy did the wording. I am i don't know what it is with a lot of guys in tattoo shops, but I have had no, like, the men who have tattooed me have been so frustrating <laughs> in not listening to what I want. And it's always too late to fix it. <laughs> And then they have um, kind of a one-shot deal, isn't it? It really is. And when it's this dark, they're like, yeah, there's nothing we can do about that. So I'm like, oh, well, that's another thing on my body that did not quite go how it was expected. And then I have a little mouse from Alice in Wonderland on my wrist. And then I'm covered from my neck down to my tailbone. Well, um, I'll, I'll give you a little rundown on mine then, because they're, they're <laughs> somewhat, I, I kind of think about it like my body is the locker. And, and I, I'm decorating my locker with yeah. stickers of what I'm fond of, in a sense. And uh, so I have this, of course, the first one, which um, you can't exactly see from here, but the line work in part of it is slightly thicker because I had to do, I, it started in two sittings because um, I forgot to eat. I didn't eat for my first tattoo and, and my blood sugar tanked and I fainted in the fucking chair. <laughs> I like I had like an apple and some fruit, some extra fruit, and and I'm with my wife, and she got hers first. Her first tattoo was a semicolon on her wrist, and ah, oh. and and I start getting this line work, and I'm like, I don't know if I can. And then my eyes rolled back, and the next thing I know, she's smacking me in the face, trying to get me to eating <gasps> into the garbage can, and then I'm kind of just clutching this this solo cup of Coca Cola for dear life. And, and so for a little while, I was just walking around with kind of this weird kind of line segment, you know, but I've got that. I've got, um, after that would have been these triangles, uh, which my wife and I share because triangle is kind of the emotional safety word of our relationship where, cause we're both kind of sarcastic people and we're both people who like to speak colorfully. So if, if we ever needed, especially early on, a, a kind of a cut the bullshit word and take me on my face, it was triangle. Okay, safety word. <laughs> it, was, it was this kind of deal where, especially because again, I, I, I had a lot of words for a long time, but I wasn't always great at using them. So 
uh, in an attempt to be colorful or to figure myself out. I, I upset people uh, habitually, so I, I asked for that to, uh, to make sure that I wouldn't do that to her. And, and it sort of carried over. So we have those. Uh, then, I guess, I have um, the prince, the love symbol, with a little star in it for David Bowie as they both died in the same year. That was a mean year. This one's worse, but that was mean. Yeah, that was really, there was some beauty to Bowie, but Prince was just, that sucked. That really, Prince was amazing. I, I, I flipped that because Bowie is, you know, labyrinth and he, he moves over into like fantasy. I'm, I'm fully into fantasy world. And, and Black Star is, is special uh, because we get to see an artist actively confronting his mortality coming to Christmas yeah. in those moments. To me, Bowie is uh, Shakespeare of rock and roll. He is rock What a beautiful way to phrase that. He, he is rock and roll's uh, foremost tragedian. And um, my favorite record of his before this was Low, because it was a very deeply uncomfortable uh, listen for me. It was somewhere around there, somewhere around the Berlin era, something really just broke him and, and nothing was the same or whatever. But those the, those Berlin era stuff, scary monster, super creeps too. Like there's just there is this pervasive sadness in there that I resonated with. Um, and then Black Star comes out, and I waited. And I didn't like I I didn't listen to it at first. Uh, I waited, and then he died, and then I was like, okay, let's make the time for this. Let's roll a joint. Let's uh, you know put on the good headphones. Let's sit in bed, turn off the lights, burn some incense. And that sounds I, like fun. <laughs> it was a highly distressing experience, but in the best way. It was, and by the time I can't give everything away happens, I'm just bawling. I'm, I'm like this guy just walked through the Stargate, waving us farewell. This guy, yeah. did, he did it right. He got to go out with a proper goodbye. He got to. I know he was still working, but it's one of those things, kind of like Freddie Mercury too, worked on borrowed time. Exactly. Or um, Chad, uh, oh gosh, um, words, uh, uh, actor, uh, Black Panther. Oh, Chad McBoke. Yeah, like there's something about like being sick or and especially being mortally sick and knowing that your art actually has a time limit. Like you need to create what you need to create. Like viscerally, you get it. Like, yeah. And that's a very different experience. Like I think it's different for for me because it's my disease is a lifestyle killer not a life killer yes but, um my pots could absolutely create a, a fatal situation <laughs> um it often does um and there's a whole bunch of other stuff i've i've almost died from but and that like gives you a fire but if you're like actually getting a date from a doctor i think that i, I can't imagine what that does to your creativity especially if you're already in a project and yeah that record, Stitch by Stitch, is love. Like, I know people who worked on that record. It was, I'm in New Jersey. I, I live across the Hudson River from New York. Right yeah, you're, you're in the scene. <laughs> and it was recorded at a, a place called The Magic Shop, which is now an archival place rather than a studio itself. But, um, the, yeah, people, people uh, in my scene worked on that, and I can feel this love at every level. People... For one thing, it's David Bowie. You don't you don't get a more regal opportunity than to work on a Bowie record. No. <laughs> um, but just the beauty and the tragedy of it, and and how deeply uncomfortable things like Sue, just all this crazy jazz fusion 
happening around, um, it struck me. Uh, from there, I have um, my nuclear arms. Okay. Yep. I wanted a little joke, and from that, I kind of expanded into this robot that is a logo of one of my good friend's companies, uh, The Latest Noise, which uh, I, I've done work with, I'm affiliated with as a content creator, uh, so that's the noise bot, and um, a little bit of a custom, because I told him if he got that tattoo, I'd get it, and so I sort of folded it into uh, my nuclear arm, so it's a nuclear noise bot now, and um, after that, uh, I guess to commemorate, that, that would be commemorative as well uh as as this guy here um this is daryl daryl is the lead singer of uh, a band i'm in called bwq and uh, daryl hates his birthday daryl uh daryl is a person uh of the same sort of I, I i consider him quite a brother to me um because we have this this way of looking at the world that is uh intellectualized yet still highly existential it, it, it's it's almost sad yet hopeful in a way um and I, I i saw him the day after his birthday at uh, an art gallery that another friend of ours runs or a photography studio that had some butcher paper on the wall and people were drawing and what i didn't realize was the night before at at at, at the show he was at uh our friends who were playing played him happy birthday and then they proceeded to play happy birthday for him in every single key. So they just kept modulating upward, and, and I guess they played it for him 12 times, and he just kind of kept sinking into the floor. So I asked him how his birthday was, and he, uh, instead of answering me, and proceeded to draw this doodle uh, on the wall. And that moment there, I knew I was going to look for an excuse to get that put on my body. I was just so charmed by it. It was just like, it, as a self-portrait, it was impeccable to me. And so later that year, uh, if that was October, uh, in December, BWQ went down to Nashville to uh, record a record called Crack Up, or at this point it's called One by One uh, on Spotify. It was renamed. And we recorded it at a place called Blackbird Studio, which is um, just kind of a Grammy factory. Like, uh, it's Martina McBride's recording studio. Um, a lot of very popular music has been uh, recorded there. We were actually in the rooms where Kings of Leon recorded Sex on Fire. Like, we were in those rooms working. And it was this incredible camaraderie. Like, it, it was the it was one of my finest moments to me because of the the beautiful camaraderie the um the productivity of it the excitement of getting to bring i have done a few records now at blackbird and uh getting to bring daryl there was uh, excitement because again it, you really can't find a better situation to record in it's a top tier studio and we were getting it the same way that you get a haircut at a barber college so like you know, they were teaching, it's a teaching studio, so mm. like, you get kind of a discounted rate to use millions of dollars of gear and really fancy stuff. Um, and you get to bring your multis home and you can work on them from there. But uh, it was going so well that uh, I and the bass player uh, decided to walk off, go to downtown Nashville. He wanted to go watch some, some really awesome country music and get a fried bologna sandwich. I wanted an ice cream cone. So I got my ice cream cone, and I'm like, if there's a tattoo parlor nearby, I'll uh, I'll just walk in and I'll get this thing, and we'll celebrate Daryl's record properly. 
and so I did, and so there was, and um, I showed him this tattoo. We I reconvened with the bass player. You know, we had a shot afterwards and uh, walked back, and all I could think is, wait till he sees this. So I get back, and I just casually am removing the, the, the plastic. It's been a couple hours now, and he just buckled. He buckled entirely. He, he, his legs gave out, and he's just like, you son of a bitch. That was, a, that was kind of a weird one for me, too, because I also was going through a nosebleed situation at that time. I, I had a nosebleed for two weeks straight while recording that record. How so, does that work? Do you, how, how do you keep working with that? You look at the ceiling a lot. Okay. At the time, I hadn't discovered the miracle of tampons. Um, that became my COVID nosebleed uh, discovery because that was a whole other thing. But... Um, yeah, it was a persistent deal, and um, it, after a while, it can become psychologically wearisome. You swallow enough blood, and your throat gets sore. Um, but yeah, there there were definitely. It was less about during the sessions themselves, and more uh, when I was prone or or on my stomach and uh, trying to sleep. And and it would be one of those things where I was. Uh, losing sleep because I would wake up to a nosebleed or I would wake up to pee and it would start bleeding and I'd have to kind of, I, I wasn't going to go back to sleep after that because you're, it's kind of like waking up to wetting the bed just from a different hole and, and you got to deal with it. You got to deal with it. You're in an Airbnb and you just wrecked this guy's sheets and you got to deal with it. Like, or your sinus is packed with blood and you're snoring. So your, your drummer, your best friend in the band, like, decides to go sleep in a closet and you're so fucking guilty over it kind of deal um it, it is psychologically kind of a, a wearisome thing so there's one song that i recorded last where there's essentially only one take of whatever i did because it was simple enough that i could do it in one take but i was just so beaten down by all of that that i was like okay that's good right okay good except it was like okay that's good because i couldn't really speak i couldn't I couldn't even sing on the on the last couple of dates we had because it was that annoying. Um, so that was that was that. Like it, for me, a nosebleed isn't threatening. It's never going to be threatening. I'm probably going to make more blood than I'm going to lose. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna get the blood back. Um, it's just annoying. It it is uh, something that has to be dealt with, and it it the tampons became sort of a miracle for me in that way, even though sometimes I'd oversaturate if I chose one that was too light. That kind of became this sort of experiment between myself and my wife over things. Um, but they would never be fatal. At least none of the ones I've had right now. So that's, uh, that's Daryl. That's the long way of talking about Daryl there. Um, and from there, I would say my, my most recent one I got in January uh, another band logo, um, this guy here is, I'm a big fan of the band Ween, and uh, Ween's logo is supposed to be this god that the two of them created called the Boognish, and to me, it's sort of like Ween and the Grateful Dead, or sort of people react the same way, those who get it, get it, and so when I, when somebody sees this on my arm and responds positively, I feel like it's kind of like a secret handshake sort of thing. So, and, and in that way, it's when one of my favorite artists saw that, and he's like, nice boognish, man. And I'm like, thank you. Yep. You know, it, it made me feel as though I stood out to him, perhaps if only for a shared taste in Ween. 
there's just like little things that if someone noted, like um, my daughter's daycare teacher had a Righteous Babe logo, uh, Annie DeFranco's um, label, who I love Annie DeFranco <laughs> like, so much. So when I saw this Righteous Babe thing on this like woman who's like teaching my daughter, I'm like, I'm good here. Go ahead, teach her whatever you want. Or <laughs> I trust you. <laughs> I, I, I get it. Yeah, it was just like this, it was this sisterhood almost of like, you you actually know who this person is, you embrace those values, we're yeah. good. <laughs> exactly, it's, if, if this person uh, struck you enough that you've indelibly got them attached to your body, that, that definitely means you've internalized yeah. the philosophy pr pretty well. Exactly, it was, it was, it's just like the little kind of obscure things if you, they're on a shirt or on your body or something and someone notices, you're like, oh, we're good. <laughs> I just made a new friend in- Yes. And I just introduced my 13-year-old to N.A. DeFranco, so this has been a very exciting week for us. That's excellent. I hope, I, I, I hope it goes better than when my mom tried to introduce me to Eric Clapton music. <sighs> I like Eric Clapton. I love Andy DeFranco. <laughs> oh, I, I I only say that to mean like when I started playing guitar, my mom was like, oh, okay. listen to Layla, you should listen to this record. And I, I did, and I didn't get it. And I asked my mom what she saw in this. And I was expecting an answer about the music, of course. And she told me, uh, well, when I was younger, my mom worked in television uh, in her youth, and, and um, she got to meet a lot of celebrities of that era, let's say like the mid-70s, early to mid-70s, so like Roger Daltrey and his prime va-va-voom sort of stuff. And she was like, well, I, you know, when I was younger, I thought if I ever met Eric Clapton, I'd have a shot. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm, I'm like 14, 15. That's a lot there for 14. <laughs> and I'm like, mom, what is what, what do you mean? And she said, um, well, he wasn't, like, he, he, he seemed gettable. Like, he wasn't super hot. He was, like, modestly, and I'm, okay, Mom, thank you for telling me about your self-esteem. Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you for, uh, thank you for telling me that. Um, I'm not going to be a fan of Eric Clapton, if that's okay with you. Uh, at this point, more on principle than anything. <laughs> Just on need for therapy alone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it has to get in line behind, you know, hemophilia, but like definitely, definitely was not a way to sell it neon Eric Clapton. No. I was like <laughs> and they did Franco and Tori Amos, like I'm probably about twelve years older than you or something, but um Tori Amos came out with her first album when I was sixteen. And I did not understand music until I heard her first album where she did a cappella. Mm. And um, it was her own writing and then I heard Annie DeFranco and it was like I suddenly understood what music could be as far as I, I always thought of like music as like pop or classical or nothing spoke to me but when like they actually talked about real things that are happening in their lives that broke them or built them and they were like pink underbelly shivering honest about it it like it opened my viewpoint on what music could actually do, what it could be, how it can storytell. It's a beautiful thing. And I, I think about this uh, a lot in the sense as an expressionist of um, what I grew up with, uh, being born in, in the late 80s and kind of getting to experience uh, a very strange period of popular music. Like, <laughs> the 90s. Uh -huh. <laughs> 
the 90s was an era in which ugliness roamed free. I'm still pissed about that, by the way. The years were, like, I was going to look the best I was ever going to look, and it was Doc Martens, baby doll dresses, and oversized overalls. That was just not okay. It was, I mean... Flannels. I, I, I'm... I, I was here for that, and then there was this weird late 90s thing with the belly shirts and this oh, God. Yep. white motif that was everywhere, but just you had a band like Soundgarden dominating, which was a band that used a lot of odd time signatures. Granted, they had an absolute hunk fronting them with a gorgeous voice, so that helped. It was pretty. <laughs> oh, I mean, if an eye roll could be a human being, it would be Chris Cornell. Like, that's... <laughs> that was the era, and... and you had these weird sounding a band like Primus could break in the nineties and they were as zany as, as 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 that could get. You had uh, you know, the the new wave of British heavy metal and, and thrash metal uh, dominating into Metallica being you know, Metallica being essentially the the hard rock metal cultural force of the nineties. Uh, and and from there you've bands like Tool, uh, but you also had this I guess, well, what tool? Because I think they're a California band, but you had this dominating California thing between, um, like, No Doubt, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Sublime. You had this big sort of funk and ska into metal and rock thing into hip-hop because one of these bands that I'm really getting into right now is Incubus um, because it's not that I missed them the first time. You couldn't really get away from them, but, like... I never did the deep dive because they always had a single. They always had a new single, and it was always really good, and I was always really satisfied with it. But now I'm starting to do the dig, and uh, it's one of those things where I'm like, no, I get it. I see exactly where this plays into the like the anthropology of things, and it, it is something I've come to appreciate about about that sound. Is you had a lot of this blend. Of, of different stuff a lot of very heavy heavy guitars with a lot of incredibly groovy rhythm sections and and i always found that appealing um especially the heavy guitars uh, or at least just guitar heavy music um, i grew up with them my mom was a, a singer she's a folk singer in california my dad new yorker um was a hippie and he loved janice joplin and the doors and uh, so whenever my mom would leave he would just take all of her records and put them off to the side and take out Janis Joplin Big Brother Holding Company and uh, yeah that's what like all of my childhood was listening to like the acid rock of <laughs> as soon as my mom walked out when she came back in it was John Denver it was <laughs> you know, and mom and was a little more in line with with mine we had Frank Sinatra we had uh, show tunes. We had lots of Into the Woods and Guys and Dolls. Oh, wow. <laughs> we had um, a little bit of Beatles, uh, usually the lighter stuff, not really any of the weird Beatles, but like, you know, Here Comes the Sun or, or some of the White Album stuff. We had Billie Holiday um, and Tony Bennett. And, and then, you know, my sister being the cool older sister, you know, I would hear stuff like the toadies coming out of her room. Or oh her. my God! How did I forget about the toadies? Well, that's one of those bands. Like that, that, <gasps> that Possum Kingdom is one of the ugliest songs I've ever heard. In the but it's obsessively good. Yeah. But so dark, but so good. Like yeah, it's one of those things where I'm like, how did this become a single? And I mean, I'm here for it. I'm here. Yeah, for I it. mean, Southern Gothic murder in a swamp, but. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's just one of those things where you know coming back around as a musician i i remember the appeal of it from then and and i start to realize how things like that might have imprinted on me well it's like a shirley jackson short story set to music in the deep south by a bayou it's that's how I view um, Primus. Primus is almost entirely like little Faulkner novelettes, like all these dark suspect. Like My Name Is Mud is is classic. Faulkner. I am loving having this conversation, by the way, so much. I'm here for it, man. I'm, I'm so here for this. Yeah. I like. I am. Uh, my my degrees in literature. I I'm a I am a reader. I found out that you could get a college degree to read, and I'm like, okay, I'm forgetting everything else. This is. <laughs> I don't care if I work after this. I will read for whatever I can. Um, so talking about like like books and music is everything. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting because I've tried to do. I, I've tried to be a reader i've been i'm not much of a visual reader i'm more i have a pretty expansive audible account um and i think i've tried can i give you a quick suggestion if you want to save money hmm? can i give you a suggestion if you want to save money i'm here for it what is it if you have a library card you can download an app called libby okay and all of the audible books you have are for free there interesting like 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 all all um, anything that the li the anything that's been a major release or a not so major release that the library has access to, you download it onto your phone and you listen to it like it's audible. Huh, good to know. And it's the same readers, like it's the same actors and actresses reading it that you pay for, but it's free. <laughs> no, I'll have to investigate. I I definitely have used the credits as gifts and such. Like I, I gift people books. Oh, that's um, awesome. What's your most gifted book? What do you love to hand out? Um, a book called Freak Out, or not Freak Out, it's called Shell Shocked, uh, written by a, a man named Howard Kalin. Okay. Howard Kalin was the lead singer of the Turtles. Um, I can't see me loving nobody. Yep. You know? <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, what I didn't realize at the time is that he was also uh, a singer for uh, one of my favorite artists, Frank Zappa. Um, and Frank Zappa's band at the time had these two gentlemen called the fluorescent leech and eddie or Flo and eddie and he was eddie and they this is his autobiography that that really also like i only kind of knew the turtles for you know happy together that's 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 kind of it's one of those kind of low-key brilliant songs and you get with this an appreciation for just kind of how concurrently and how dovetailed that kind of stuff was. Um, you hear him talking about having dinner with Jimi Hendrix. You hear him talking about um, getting to hear Sgt. Pepper's in advance, you know, because he was on tour. Wow, it's easy to appreciate that all, it's easy, it's easy not to appreciate, it's easy to forget that all this shit was happening at the same time. That, that the mid 60s were this blur and flurry of uh, what we consider to be complete cultural hallmarks. Like the Beatles released 12 albums in six years. Like that's, that's like, that was the way people did things. then. it was basically a record every six months or so. Um, so from, from the turtles to, to being in, in Frank Zappa's band and, and, uh, just the brilliance, the low key brilliance of those men and, and the interesting life that, uh, Howard Kalin has has led has led me to gift that book uh, to to a number of friends. 
and he just kind of has this really kind of <laughs> kind of demeanor to him when he talks. He he knows the life he's lived, and he's kind of this easygoing. It almost kind of reminds me of Tommy Chung in a way. Okay. Which yep. Is, which is lovely. It's it's a lovely disposition to have for mm-hmm. this kind of stuff, especially given that a lot of it does involve drug culture. And I think one of my favorite stories from the book is um, Frank Zappa was notoriously uh, anti-drug. He was uh, notoriously anti-drug in the sense that he didn't care what people did as long as they didn't really excuse their behavior for it. He uh, more bluntly said that a lot of people treat intoxicants as a license to be an asshole. And he would not tolerate it from his band members because uh, he didn't want to have to bail them out of jail, but also the music was complicated and you needed your wits to do it. So he tells a story about how um, he and the other singer were outside smoking marijuana and how uh, Frank came out and started kind of castigating them and be like, I am not paying you to get high. This is stuff that we just went over and I don't need it flying out of your head. And Howard planted his feet and said, test us. And he did it. They did it. They 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 rebuffed him. And and he's like, all right, well, I'm not bailing you out of jail. Like, it was one of those, like, oh, fine sort of moments. And I, I found that uh, gorgeous. I found that to be a gorgeous moment to to read about. Um, so that would be that would be the book. Uh, I wish there was more of Zappa's literature that was recorded because he was a very, uh, you would, if you've never uh, seen any of his books, um, they are highly punctuated. They are highly punctuated. Uh, I'm sorry? That's interesting. I've never read his books. It's one of those things where he he is the consummate composer. He would, he, to me, his books seem to read like he, he is really guiding you uh, to his inflections with uh, random italizations and, and random bolding that, that are supposed to give sort of, he directs you to cadence. And I find that very charming. It's, it's almost like, uh, again, dynamic notes on a piece of sheet music or something, which he would absolutely do. Um, I would recommend there's uh, his book, uh, his main book is the real Frank Zappa book, um, which may or may not be out of print. It shouldn't be difficult to find, but um, he, he was a very interesting man to me because I felt like his, his books, his words were almost like a manual. Um, there was a lot of objectivity while demonstrating opinion. And, and it kind of reminds me a lot of the uh, Ron Swanson character from Parks and Recreation in the sense that he would sort of spell things out. Yes, he would have his opinions, but it would be like they would be kind of adorned with facts, if not also biases. Uh, and, and I found that to be interesting. That was my big COVID discovery was Parks and Rec. I had never watched it before. Oh, uh, yeah? It took me about a week to get through all of it. It's, it was one that I didn't care for in um, while it was on. I watched maybe one episode, and I was I ne- I don't understand The Office yet, but I didn't understand Parks and Rec at the time, and I kind of came to an appreciation of Nick Offerman through his book. That's another one I've gifted: Paddle Your Own Canoe. Oh, it was in audio book form. He narrates. Okay, I would do that. Just I love listening to his voice. Yeah, he has like three books. Uh, of his own 
Um, and he, then he has a book with his wife, Megan Mullally, that they both narrate, and it's hilarious. I didn't know they were married. Yeah, they've been... Oh my god, that makes their scenes together so much funnier. Oh god, yeah. And, and, and the way he speaks about her is always in complete reverence and awe. He, he speaks as much as a disciple as a lover. It's it's beautiful. I love that when I hear it, people talk about their spouses like they really enjoy and like them. Like that, it makes me happy when I hear that. I'm so sick of hearing the like "take my wife, please" jokes and like it's so annoying and frustrating. Like my husband is my one of my favorite humans on the face of the earth, and I like to think that I'm his too. Like it's just sad when you see people who like their other person isn't their refuge my my wife is the only reason a coherent human being uh, gets here <laughs> zooming with you uh, she, but i would like to say the same about my husband but it's his fault i was up at three in the morning because he was snoring like a bear so he is not why i'm coherent <laughs> that is coffee <laughs> it is uh she she allowed me to uh through her infinite patience and compassion to, to sort of figure myself out over the last nine years and um, a good friend of mine, a singer named Sylvana Joyce, uh, once said to me that love is when you um, see a person for their darkness uh, and you see the darkness contained in them and you think, no, I can live with that. And, and I, yeah, I was already married when I heard that, but I believed that term, that, 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 that really applied here. And uh, she and I kind of came to each other at, at highly sort of damaged places of our lives and uh, we found a bit of refuge. I wouldn't say salvation necessarily, but refuge for sure uh, in each other. And uh, from there, uh, I have, I've been attached to this very compassionate, very astute, uh, incredibly witty woman who uh, allows me to be whatever my particular splendor is and uh, does not arbitrarily limit me. She's like, yeah, just do whatever. Don't wake me up. You know, don't just, just just come home. Just just make sure there's coffee in the coffee pot, and like, don't wake me up. And I think those are easy rules to live by. And it, it does take a special kind of individual to uh, be able to appreciate that their spouse is going to be traveling a lot. Because I've done, you know, again, I toured. I would do uh, trade shows and stuff like that. I've been gone for a month at a time, and of course, it didn't start out that way, but. Uh, you know, there was the understanding that it would work up to those things. And in that way, my wife teaches me about compassion uh, constantly, uh, often by demonstrating it to me. I don't know if there's another way to teach compassion, but watching it, it I think it's one of those things like empathy is something that can be built by reading or by by watching it exhibited. It's, um, she, she's, she's also the, like, the funniest person I know. Like, she is um, we, we are consistently making each other laugh, and I am grateful for that. So I, I share with you that that moment of like, yeah, yeah. your spouse is your spouse. To, my spouse to me is my better. You know, it's there's a you know like when you're doing a bit like online dating profile stuff, and they ask all these ridiculous asinine questions. It's like goofiness. Why isn't goofiness on there? Because like, how could you like? I could not survive five minutes with someone who's not a goofball. Like. It's just my sense of humor. I don't know how anyone could survive me if they're not goofy. Like, let alone up with a chronic condition. Yeah, 
Oh, I mean, like, isn't that kind of like our markers? Like when we're sick all the time, like a lot of us are sarcastic, snarky, hilarious people. Yeah, because that's really that's that's it's it's kind of low energy uh, wittiness. And it's also singing for your like I sing for my supper. I feel like there's a certain level of entertaining. I feel like I have to be for healthy people so that they stay around. That's... Not my husband. My husband has absolutely seen me at my darkest. But like regular people, like friends or acquaintances, I feel like I have to sing for my supper and be entertaining. Ah, <laughs> I take it you get this. <laughs> I, I, if there was ever a defining way to put that, yeah, that's it's it. It doubles back around to me saying that yeah, I, I kind of put on a sideshow about it. Yeah, and it's been difficult to uh, discuss it sincerely. That's also why because. Oh, yeah, that one. And that's sort of the crux of, of my record that I'm working on right now. I, I put out a few. Uh, I put out one uh, record that I, I, you know, appreciate because it kind of gave me what I have now. I built my recording studio a uh, small little bit to make that record. And from there, it turned into uh, the, the, the place that I have now that is that is quite a, a place to work. Um, and... The material on it was good for the time that I was writing because it was kind of all I had to offer. But um, looking back on it now, it feels uh, impersonal and performative. Um, there is a lot of uh, harsh sort of criticism from my father who kind of felt like the like that all music sort of ended after about 1965 or something. It, our parents might need to talk, I think. Or actually, my son, your father and my son would get along great. I, I wish I could make that conversation happen. However, my father has been, um, both of my parents are deceased at this uh. point. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted to be weird and I would want to be even weirder when he would turn his nose up at something. But I had, you know, there are some things on there that I, that I found joy in. And for a while I decided not to do my own work. Uh, or rather, I decided to work collaboratively within the, the, the form of a band. Uh, I was much more preferred for band work, uh, and the only reason I sort of did a solo album is because the band I was in at the time was so dysfunctional that we weren't going to really do much, and I needed to do something. And I had just been diagnosed with arthritis. I didn't know if I was going to really get to keep playing guitar. I didn't know where that was going to go, so I had to, I felt this drive to have something to show for it. And then, you know, so that, that led to a record called Round of Sound, which... Um, is the song itself is something I'm proud of. And then there's a song on there called Mad Dog's Promenade, which is just about the joy of walking around. And another song called The End of Me, which is sort of a uh, letter that I wrote to my mother. Uh, she passed away during the recording of the record and um, it was sort of about my commitment to not giving up on uh, being an artist, on being a human being. Uh, that I was not gonna stop. Like she would always tell me to lie, you know, to relax, to, to go lie down. I'm like, no, lying down is gonna be the end of me. So that kind of became the lyric, the refrain, lying down will be the end of me. And and it was supposed to be sort of like my own little arthritic hey Jude or something. And so there there in there was some meaning, but in around it was a song about having a crush on a lesbian or not getting laid on a rooftop or like me trying to write a you suck song and not being very good at it twice and then you know or three times maybe um there, there's a few things on there 
Uh, and then I joined bands and did stuff with them that I really liked and still like. And I had some friends being like, when are you going to do another album? And I'm like, when are you going to grow a second penis? What's more likely right now, dude? I'm, <laughs> not see the body of work I'm putting out right now. Like, when people would ask about it, it was flattering. But it was like, come on, this is this is every bit as important to me as, as anything I've done on my own. And eventually, I was surrounded by such brilliant writers, uh, people that I'm proud to call colleagues, peers, uh, that, that inspired me to want to be creative for myself again. And a record uh, called Betamax came from that. And uh, from there... I had it's still somewhat performative it's three songs I, I look at it as a suite of um sort of self-awareness one is uh sort of a song about anxiety another one is a song about um solitude or of, of, of a pursuit of peace and when that pursuit of peace becomes toxic in a sense or when when to know to let it go and in the middle of that is a love song for my wife um that is very very 90s and and i will have to send that your way at some point i feel you please do actually if you um send me links to these i'll put them in the show notes so yeah. they just show up at the very top and um, reminds you circling back to something you said at the beginning of our talk of um just having all these words and they sometimes bury true meanings and you sometimes are like yourself just searching through them and it really it hits me really hard because i'm a writer and a photographer and a, an illustrator, but I will not talk about pain. I I have never written a character who has chronic pain. I have never photographed anything that was about pain. It is my one subject I've never tried to explore in my art. Well, it's complicated. I've explored everything else. I've done dark fairy tales. I've done soul searching. I, I used to do um, photo shoots every weekend and just explore stuff i have never touched on disability and pain in my art or my writing it's complicated uh, my own experience my own endeavors of trying to deal with it have um, led me to appreciate how complicated it is because on one side you have the fluff you have uh, almost this sort of toxic positivity oh <laughs> yeah that one i mean it's, you're so inspiring yeah. so inspiring let's go climb a mountain it's only about disability if you see it as something you're not able to do. It's one of those things where, you know- It's people, bumper stickers everywhere. <laughs> it's all that buzzworthy shit. Oh God. It's like the wellness it. industry. Like I can't, I just can't. That's essentially what I, and, and then, then the other side of it is that you're basically uh, taking your self-pity and self-fellatiating on it from there. <laughs> That is the other side of, of, of it. It's like, I'm sad that I'm broken. And then there's no actual meaning. It's, it's equally as vapid in, in, in when, when you do that. And, and that was part of why I didn't for a while. And I, I felt this need to almost keep my condition separate from my writing, from my work. And, and it also, in that way, led to some vapid work. But um, it, it became a, a, a complicated issue for me because it's easy to want to kind of take this thing that is pervasive and try and lump it into one bite. And uh, it's easy to try and, and look at it uh, in, a, in a place of, um, well, almost like a, a dragon in a, in a story. Like it's something you slay and then you're done with it. You know, Beowulf slayed Grendel and he was happy forever or something. 
you know, this isn't a Grendel, this is, this is, we don't, we're not supposed to fight this, we're supposed to tango with it or something, and it's hard to appreciate and oftentimes impossible to do, but the reality of it is kind of that if you cut that out, then you're cutting out the rest of you. It's, um, my wife at one point, um, really tried to not feel sad for a while. She has her own damage, and I, I won't get into that, but, um, by trying to avoid sadness, she avoided a lot of emotionality altogether. It's, it's, you can't really, uh, dissect that. You can't cut it out of you like a tumor or something. It's, it's something that you, uh, to quote one of my own songs, it's, um, a pain you settle into and forgive. And Ooh. this, um, I, yeah. Are you familiar with Elizabeth Gilbert? With whom? Elizabeth Gilbert. Not particularly. Uh, no worries. Um, she's a writer, um, but she talks about her anxiety and her fear. And she's like, it's invited on the road trip, but it may not touch the map. It may not drive. It may not choose the music. It can't choose the snacks. It, its job is to sit in the back and scream. And it's my job to choose the music and drive. And like, it's it's a part of me and you have to forgive it and love it. Well, you don't have to love it, but you, you have to deal with it. It's not that, going that, away. You have to respect that it exists. Exactly. You have to, like, she's like, I thank my fear. My fear is there to keep me alive. So I say thank you, but you're not needed right now. So yeah. go sit in the back. And yeah, I'm like, that's that's an interesting way to look at all of this. It, it's definitely that. And, and for a minute, um, I as I started to crystallize, because I had been working on a record that I was going to call. So as you know, my handle on Instagram is fine music. And, um, I was going to call it fine comma music, like fine. Here's some music, like deal, put that in your pipe. And, and it was not going well. It was, uh, I felt like I would have released a very rushed, uh, very meaningless thing. Um, if I had continued and, and COVID gave me the opportunity to sort of scrap that and reassess and to kind of dig into my relationship with songwriting and with, how um especially myself as a lyricist i never like i would have these cute little moments and i would have these little moments of insight but i was so used to being sort of scrutinized by my by, by sometimes my father by sometimes other people uh for a combination of, of people not appreciating what i was going for and my own inadequacy of getting there um so it was a little bit of that uh, sort of uh, the one that sticks out to me is a, a song that I wrote called Shade of the Trees that uh, the sort of the refrain it's a little bit of a mantra under the shade of the tree is a place I can play if I have nowhere to go and I have nowhere to stay and my father could not for the life of him appreciate why I didn't rhyme anything with tree and I'm like that's not where this sentence ends dad you know the rhyme is on play that's that's where that goes and he's like no it should be under the shade of the tree is a place i'd like to be i'm like no dad this is not your no you know, go back to your farina let's uh you know and and in that time I've, i i'd like to think over covid having to really come to terms with this prevailing sadness that i couldn't bury under projects um oh, oh. <laughs> yeah like it took away i was i was working like i was working like an absolute maniac to avoid dealing with things and, and with COVID going away I uh, you know taking all of the the dates and the prospect ability for work away I, I was kind of left with, with nothing but my goddamn self and that's um, an innovation moment right there yes yes and, all and, of us who are chronically ill and disabled and we keep trying to pile projects on because we do not want to take a look at it 
Yeah. And and from there, there came uh, a few songs that I let myself focus on. Uh, and, and one of the first lines uh, that was sort of a turning point for me was a, a, a song called Creeping Moss. And the idea, the song, the, the, the repeated line is, I clear my thoughts of creeping moss. And to me, that was a metaphor for regret, for this regret that turns into a feedback loop. Mm. you know like this you know maybe it is a girl whose pigtail i pulled in fourth grade english or something and i'm like shit we're in our 30s now she could have a family and a mortgage i don't know her but i know what my trip is and i'm like did i fuck her up with that i'm like no dude we're in our 30s now it's cool it's cool she's cool i hope she's cool she no she's whatever it is at that point it's her problem like it's 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 one of those things where you have to figure out i guess the right metric of of shame or contrition for it um but it started there, and then it, it, for me, I found myself consumed with this notion of reasonability to harken back to all that fluffy, uplifting shit. The, the idea there, and, and again, Zappa said it best to me, that love has gotten too preposterous in music, that uh, a lot of times love gets painted as the, again, that the, the end, you know, we've attained it. The end, it's all going to work out from there. When in reality, <laughs> love is more, ever after. It's more the beginning of the story than the end, according mm-hmm. to Frank. And to me, that the idea of reasonability in that set- sentiment uh, weighed heavily on me. Um, and and so I, I wrote a song called Piece by Piece after that, that had this stanza. It had this it's, was one of the, the moments where I really began appreciating what I was writing. And having sort of these lines like I haven't been comprehending the signals that I have been sending I've come to depend on them now they've upended me I have no business defending behaviors that I've been fermenting they're all that I've been but they're not all I'll ever be I'll tell all the world where I stand I consent to release I'm planting my flag in the sand making peace piece by piece that whole thing of, of reasonability there and that it's not something you do and that's something that we all encounter to me is this uh over expectation of ourselves of of you know we're gonna all go out and we're all gonna run every day or we're all gonna you know rather than sort of rolling the flywheel more slowly and and appreciating those little things and appreciating the effort in that it's it's, or we're gonna come out of covid all with six packs learning a second language and written the great american novel because you know we're not all traumatized right now exactly or our favorite politician is gonna get elected in the next day stop no no please i i can't i literally can't either i and i shan't because that's not a productive you know i believe just from speaking with you that i know where we stand on this but you think I'm sure your politics are as nuanced as anyone else's, but we, we most certainly don't need to. I mean, I'm, I'm from the Bay Area in California. I think you can pretty much just figure it out. And yeah. I'm sick. That's like, you know, people are like, where's your politics? Do you know where my politics are? Compassion. Yeah. That's where my politics are is compassion and empathy. If the politics do not line up with compassion and empathy for others, I am not on board. Yeah. That's it's exactly. not simple. I, I don't care which party that aligns with. It is literally, I think that we should have the dignity of life. Other people deserve the dignity of life. Other people deserve education, houses, food. Yeah. A safe place to be. And if they want to become something else, they should have that possibility to do that. It's not hard. I And I'm, I'm sick. Yeah. I want to, my last doctor bill was $14,000 to go to the emergency room. 
Exactly. I I inject a modest sedan into my body every month. Yeah. <laughs> like my my medical bills, and this is I I jokingly call this my elephant gun because it stops every Republican in their tracks. Mm-hmm. About that, where I'm like the, the hemophiliacs. If I didn't have insurance, I would cost something like half a million a year to medicate. Like. And my father has COPD, and he has to have, um, oh, I forget what it's called, but it's this infusion. It, it takes his entire blood supply out. Remove, so, yeah, and it was like $20,000 a cycle, and he had to have it done every three weeks. That, that yeah. Is, so, suddenly you're grateful for what you don't have. Exactly, and we're immigrating. We're actually leaving the country, hopefully pretty soon. Um and the country we're going to, I, I didn't even know this until like, I was just randomly looking like, oh wait, can we move here? Do they have opioids? Am I allowed to still take my pain meds? Do they have medical marijuana? Am I gonna be okay? And I was researching their, their thing, but it was also, they have nursing for free, nursing home for free. My best friend just paid $20,000 a month for her father to be in a nursing home. Like this is, free and then daycare is free over there too preschool is free for two years i'm like i paid a thousand dollars a month for my child to go to the school for three days a week like holy crap this is insane yeah no we are the same i'm sure we're both going to be watching tonight because we're recording this on the last night of debates oh i won't be watching no i mean i'm not but people keep texting me and i have the worst Fear of missing out. Like I hate missing out on anything. And when I'm getting all these texts, I'm like, fine, I'll watch it. That's I, why I watched the vice president debate. And I got a very good fly swatter out of it. Yeah, I, I'm sure. To me, I guess I just feel like there's more important work to do. The debates for me are like if if there's any useful information for me to glean, I can do it in a recap because uh it will be recorded. It will uh I am not the demographic for the debate in that I've already made my mind up and uh, shockingly in that way I, I take solace in it and I had to you know I've had to kind of deal with politics as they were after 2016 I I threw myself into learning about American history and how we got here but I also threw myself into learning about Adolf Hitler because everyone likes to make the comparisons and um, I, Trump that, is not much of an artist it's it's, uh, it's true, uh, but it is similar in the sense that they both kind of play out like the Larry David character in Curb Your Enthusiasm on an incredibly grandiose level. Because you I, have, hmm? oh, I, I'm gonna throw a wrench into this. Because I'm a history freak. I actually run a second podcast on history. Okay, um, I, I'm a I'm a nerd. Um, but he's way more P.T. Barnum. It's like. One- He's like P.T. Barnum is one of my favorite people in history as far as just research because he's batshit insane. Yes. And he was all about bad publicity is still good publicity as long as they're talking about you. And if you have all the rings going in the circus, they're not going to pay attention to the details. So he was uh, P.T. Barnum civil rights abuses that you would not believe like. Just the stuff he did was truly maniacal, but he didn't view it as maniacal. He just thought it was a means to an ends and it was fine because it was what he needed to get done to get something done. He was a politician who took away a whole bunch of women's rights when he was a politician. Um, But if you look at them, the way that he does publicity and the way that he believes that whatever he does is right, it's really just like similar. Like Hitler, it's, it's a hard one to... 
I mean, I get why people make the comparison, but Hitler was really on so many drugs and so many medications that yeah, it's to see the Hitler thing with with uh, with the Larry David thing rings far more yeah. true. That this was a guy who was sort of following his next meal into acceptance. <laughs> people who I don't think anyone was more surprised than he was that he ended yeah. up with the nomination. Which again feels like a very curb your enthusiasm sort of deal. Like it feels like something just goes way off the rails, and you you find yourself at the wheel of it. Uh, but for him, everything he's done has gone way off the rails, and it worked out for him. Someone bailed him out each and every time something went way off the rails. It's um, it's definitely something that that we I'm sure in our daily lives dedicate more than enough brain power to comprehending. Uh, that's true but you do make a really good point that like what you deal with you have to have insurance and you certainly are a pre-existing condition and you don't have a corporate job which is if you're listening outside of this country um which i know a lot of you are uh we don't get our insurance through our government we get our insurance because we work at a job that the it's a big enough company that they can pay insurance and you have to work 40 hours a week and a lot of companies are exempt from this, but it's the only way to get insurance, really. Otherwise, you pay. I think we were paying seventeen hundred a month when my husband lost his job. In um, in in the nineties, they used to refer to individuals as us as burning houses, because uh, you don't insure a burning house. Uh, and mm -hmm. in fact, you could be highly penalized if insured at all by companies for yeah. what you had. Um, the pre-existing condition, the threat of that being a. Um, a punishment more so than existence itself already is uh is very real and as a as an american i view myself as a concerned american citizen and i like you don't view this as a color war and uh as a result of that i have found myself uh and i'm sure you have as well trying to defend your right to existence in the most objective and compassionate way possible and unfortunately people are like talking to me as if i shouldn't exist um, <laughs> me too yeah. and it's like you, so you're basically saying you'd rather save a couple nickels in fact you'd rather spend more money because you think by this happening you're paying my medical bills you're uh you're really 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 misguided in your estimation <laughs> of how this works um, yeah. and, and and it's almost like you know because it's the way it's always been I, uh, to, to get into the lighter side of this, you're, if you're in American history, if you're a history buff, are you familiar with a podcast called The Dollop? I've heard of it. It is, um, it is uh, one of my favorite sources of, of, of American history. It's, uh, it's two comedians. Dave Anthony uh, is the leader of that. Um, I'm going to go check that out after this. Yeah, he reads a story from American history to his friend Gareth Reynolds, who knows nothing about Topic. Who doesn't know what the topic's going to be? So from, you know, talking about they may have done Barnum, um, but they've definitely done uh, Trump. They just did. Um, what's the one I was just listening to this morning? Uh, the Yippie Movement, uh, the uh, the Chicago Seven or whatever they were called. Yeah. Yeah, that was this uh, today. Abby Hoffman, um, and you know Napoleon Hill. You know, speaking, I guess, I think he was a contemporary of Barnum. So, like, guys like them who were crazy but entertaining, and, and then we took their word as doctrine somehow because we weren't around to see them being bullshit artists in real time. Um, it's interesting how that works. And, and to sort of circle, I guess, back to 
to this record, the idea of, of sort of reframing things rather than getting rid of them, I guess, is... is wow, that's, that's a good circle around. I'm impressed. That's, that's I, really interesting. I, I got lucky. Um, I'm going to have to chew on that one for a while. That's... I got, that's... I got lucky with that. Um, <laughs> that worked. Um, but because I've gone with, with different sort of names and originally I had, I wanted to call it refinement. And, and when you think about that, it's like removing little chunks of something until it's sort of optimized or uh, until it is what, what it should be. And, and instead I changed the title to redefined, uh, which sort of organized that better for me. Um, for one thing, it had a better mouthfeel. Uh, the, the word redefined just sort of felt better speaking it but it also sort of, as I do these things, it's almost like kind of like a Rubik's Cube for me right now, and, and the project didn't come to me necessarily as a completed thing. In fact, I'm maybe five-sevenths of the way through the roughest version of this vision, but um, but, but this sort of idea of, of providing a, a, reasonable, a reasonable demonstration of effort uh, was, was very important to me, and the notion of, of providing perhaps uh, inspiration for the cynic it's, you know the idea of like who, the, the, the person who needs to get up and do the dishes you know, versus the person who needs to climb the mountain and, and the, the it, it, it's to, to double back you know the stuff that makes us vomit like we if I, I work with um, the epitome of what I will call a woo woo woman um, you know she calls herself woo-woo. She is a high-energy, uh, effervescent white yoga lady, and I love her for it. She is a good friend of mine. We've done uh, a lot of meditating together during COVID. We've known each other for years, and we, we reconnected during COVID, you know, because she was looking for a project. You know, we were looking for something to work on together, and it never came about. And through sort of sitting there and meditating with her, um, a lot of this sort of came to me because she has this movement that she's trying to coalesce about. As she puts it, it's called Choose Love Music. And uh, Alexandria has been uh, trying to embody this philosophy, and in part it is a spiritual thing, in part it is kind of a rocket thing, or it, it is a thing of self-expression. And the idea of, of what Choose Love is is something she can beat me over the head with for fucking ever, and I still may not get it. But... It's something that, to me, when I think about it, like any form of spirituality is way up for individualized internalization. So for me, it became this idea of this sort of moment-to-moment -moment reasonability and the idea, and it actually sort of inspired, uh, in part, I, I, I gave her a little wink in the in the title track of this record. Um, the, the idea here, you, you may appreciate this because I got to get verbose, um, without without it being necessarily bad um the the song of course redefined the uh, it begins something like on its face a song of empty words perhaps bordering on the absurd half the time let's redefine the type of vernacular we might use and alter the lexicon until we can choose love and in spite of ourselves we may thrive through the bearing the heart and the mind and through vulnerability we might find purpose in fighting the good fight existence is changing existence is changing its tide uh this isn't a dragon meant to be slain this is the process of processing pain it takes time to redefine the meaning of life without an audience it should be obvious that you exist when you persist in drawing in breath after breath 
Now it's time to breathe deliberately and clear your mind of relentless creation born from ideations of welcoming demise. Watching and waiting will be your unmaking as you try, as you're trying to quiet the shaking foundations, continue attempting this process, you will arrive. And this whole thing of like trying to figure out what that meant. What was a reasonable message to deliver? What could make someone feel seen and not condescended to? That's that's where a lot falls down is not condescended to. It's hard. It's it's easy task and and anything short of doing it to whatever arbitrary standards I seem to be putting towards it based on my own aesthetics as a writer but also my own experience as a spoonie is 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 trying to you know and anything short of sticking that landing will not do for me on this and it's it's interesting because I've changed songs around quite a bit uh, especially because not very much rhymes with hemophilia, so <laughs> I had to approach it laterally. Uh, almost not even, is it lateral or is it just a, a completely out? Of, I, I turned it into a phonetics game. Of um, I, I wrote a song referencing uh, a girl named Ophelia, and it sort of like makes you just want to scream, Ophelia, you know? days you used to dream Ophelia you know so now I have little stupid things like that that actually ended up being sort of this almost out of the dust sort of thing where you just have this character with hope who's just kind of been broken down by by the life around them in a sense and and that young spirit dying you know in a way is kind of the great American tragedy that that we keep reading is the breaking of the youthful spirit you know, I think about that. I think about what's her face from uh, from Grapes of Wrath, Rose of Sharon. I think about her. I think about uh, Dewey Dell from uh, Faulkner. I think about um, it's. I mean, it's a lot of Americana where that seems to come up. There's that idea of the the unfulfilled promise, and that seems to be what even our political movements wrap themselves around i'm sure you know which movement i'm talking about with this unfulfilled promise means more than what is actually here and what we need to protect and it's it's interesting that i feel like the united states in particular is very um impressed with the idea of of the possibility than actually helping people reach that and chronic illness and disability, I feel like we fly in the face of that. Like, we're still here. We're still trying. We're just not reaching that possibility that you had in mind. Like, when um, I was sick, and I didn't have a diagnosis for 30 years. Oh, Jesus, fuck. Yeah, that was fun. Um, so they kept diagnosing me with things like MS and lupus. And, like, I just get these diagnoses thrown, and they would tell my parents, um, they would say things like that all the time. Like, she's going to die. She's not going to live very long. Or um, she's not going to walk after she's 30. And I remember my dad just sobbing. Like, he just started crying over this idea that I wouldn't walk. And I was like, I, I can dance for another 10 years, right? That's good. I can still do ballet. But at 30, that's old anyway. No big deal. Like, I'll be fine. And it was so weird that, that his mind was that that possibility wouldn't be hit. That I wouldn't like do these things that he saw in my life that I would should be doing. Did he? Uh, has he ever admitted that that almost felt like a shortcoming of his that you were this way? I don't know. Uh, my dad's a therapist, or he was before he got really sick. He was a, a therapist, so that's 
very interesting, but there's still a lot of stuff we do not talk about, and that is one of them. <laughs> I bet, I bet that's 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 a hard one. That it is. is. Um, but he also had a whole bunch. He was in a horrible car accident in his twenties, and he spent, I think, a year in the back ward of a hospital. Gee. Yeah. So he has a lot of issues about mobility that I never understood because to me, it's like I'm a ballet dancer. I can dance until I can't, and then. I'll be the baddest bitch in a wheelchair. No problem. I'm good. <laughs> like, but he just, he didn't see it that way. It really upset him. Maybe, maybe that's, that's part of it is like when you have something so reliable and it is lost. And I've, I've had that uh, appreciation with friends of mine. Um, again, Daryl is one of my best friends and he's Korean and he's gotten me to appreciate through just watching him and through a uh, the recent uh, heightened ar- racial tensions that, that, you know, with a periodically hit their boiling points and through those discussions I've gotten to appreciate, you know, even further about what existence as a white male is. While he has flipped that coin back on me and said that I've helped him appreciate the fact that despite the hardships of his life, he is an able-bodied individual uh, in the prime of his physical uh, ability, and uh, that that is something he might otherwise take for granted when he would see me, you know, struggling around or putting needles in me or bleeding. <laughs> like, you know, those little things. It, it is. It is definitely sort of cause for pause. That uh, is interesting to hear the perspective of of the. Uh, able-bodied or otherwise perhaps ordinary individual um, I call them temporarily abled that's uh, that is that is accurate because if they're lucky they'll get old if you're very lucky you will eventually be disabled or chronically ill because you will get old and tired and things break down yeah. or you might have an accident or you might get sick but it's all temporary <laughs> like and and, and, and interesting especially how how much more able-bodied it seems um the elderly are now than they were before uh i mean even even somebody like me as as a hemophiliac in his early 30s a few years ago like like a decade ago i might have been you know on crutches or in a cane like there are a lot of us who are in rascals there are a lot of us who are on their second set of knees um especially you know there are a lot of us who were uh impacted by the contaminated blood supply in the HIV pandemic. Oh, yeah. When, when, uh, when that was a thing, our medicine was essentially uh, a plasma-derived product, uh, if not fresh-frozen plasma itself. And uh, that, they didn't, they didn't, you know, this, this was a problem for a lot of people who were getting blood transfusions for surgeries or otherwise ended up that way and there's brian what you're probably too young to remember brian white but that was the big face of this whole issue he was a hemophiliac yeah i I mean i remember that so vividly yeah i remember i that that story is is our story that story is uh somewhat the, the 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 sadness of of the hemophiliac is that we are uh consistently a sidecar to aids we are um or the Romanovs. I mean, you have your choice. Yeah, actually, one of my favorite things that I've ever seen um, is a. It is gone now, and I can find no trace of it any longer. But uh, a conspiracy video uh, saying that hemophilia caused nine eleven. I can't. I can't. <laughs> what? It is 
so it was okay to call it specious is is wrong because that is that implies reasonability in some way i i can't even hold that in my head i just my brain's just rejecting it essentially that whole romanov thing the way that 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 it was played is that it, it um you know hemophilia's influence on tsarist russia uh, caused more more fighting and those butterflies kept flapping their wings until we hit afghanistan and 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 that's and so it's, it's like i don't i, I again I, it, it was it was the most absurd and most most furthest reaching like by that by that token i'm pretty sure dandruff could be the cause of 9-11 in the same way and and if you need to look beyond Rasputin in the Romanov story to get more drama and entertainment, I, I think that it's just lost. I, that's the thing is, I don't, I don't like they were like this, and it's like, yeah, Rasputin influenced these wars, and eventually those wars and their anthropological impact led to the towers falling, and and maybe, sure. yeah. I mean, his daughter did become a lion tamer, so in yeah. in the United States, so maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's just one of those things where I was just I was just happy for the recognition. <laughs> I was happy for the recognition because there are there are maybe two or three shows in in culture that have ever referenced us, and it's always a passing joke. Um, as a child, I remember very deliberately. Uh, I remember very clearly uh, The Simpsons referencing us twice. Um, in one instance, Homer Simpson is trying to pull a, a document out of a shredder. And his hand gets jammed in it, and he just yells, "Ah, my hemophilia!" And I'm like, "What? Somebody else knows about this? Oh wait, it's just a little punchline." And and then the show Brooklyn Nine Nine, which was my COVID discovery. Mm. Well, Michael Short, like I mean, he's brilliant. Well, the Good Place is probably the best TV I've seen in years. It is. It is pretty outstanding and I, I do love that both he and greg daniels uh both took their own spin on existentialism um and it was philosophy 101 for americans yeah it was it was outstanding it was it was just so much fun to see all of that happen uh i i really enjoyed it um in fact my wife was watching reruns of it earlier and uh, whenever i'm having a panic attack i, I that is my go-to if i'm having a panic attack that's a good one. That's a that's a good thing to know. Um, I, I, and this is Maisel for some reason. That's that's another one I, I often like. Will and Alex, Doctor Who. Alex Borstein is one of us. She is no. She's a carrier, uh, but she is uh, in terms of of stature uh, of celebrity stature. She is our greatest champion. I had no idea. She has been um, she has been a champion for bleeding disorder kind. Uh, for for quite some time now, um, up there perhaps uh, only with the late great Paul Newman, who um, Newman's own products were, uh, the, the, as it says on a Newman's own product that everything after tax after expenses or whatever after taxes goes yep. to uh, charitable causes. At least one of those charitable causes is uh, a, a a group of camps that were founded for wow. children with chronic conditions. Uh, I went to those camps. I got to meet Paul Newman as a child. No way! I was I was supposed to be on the cover of a cookbook with him, except uh, they scrapped the the cover with all the children on it for a cover of him sitting down in a in a restaurant. Um, I mean, the I, man is handsome. You, you kind of want to focus on that face. 
I, I like to think that I was the reason that the cover was scrapped, uh, because I'm pretty, like, I had for a while this framed photo of it, and it's just a bunch of us and him uh, around a jar, like a giant pot of, like, red sauce, and uh, I, I'm pretty sure I am clearly giving the kid next to me the hover hand, like, <laughs> I, I was an awkward kid, I, I had issues touching people, I had issues being touched, like, you know, because, again, strapped down, all that shit. Mm-hmm. But I, I joke about it now. I'm like, no, I was, I, it was me. I made the photo too awkward. They wanted to move volume. You know, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. It's it's kind of like, I, I like to think if the cow that started the Chicago fire had sentience, they'd be like, yup. I did the thing. I'm sorry, kind of, yeah. ish. <laughs> yeah, gotta, gotta be a little impressed with that. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, every time I blow up my life, I at least appreciate the fireworks. That's how I feel again about like the damage I've done to myself. I, I I'm sure just as you, uh, we've made a, a career at this point out of, um, we'll call it charity because we don't get paid for it. But mm-hmm. we've made, <laughs> we made a philanthropic practice out of baffling the medical industry. Yeah, I certainly don't. I pay for it a lot. Yeah. Oh, we pay for it. We don't get paid for it. So no, no. And anyone who's listening who has this idea of like, as I've been this argument twice this week of no, we need American health care because if you live in socialized medicine, they can deny you care. I live here. I've been denied care again. I now cannot get physical therapy, which is the only person who can relocate my joints. So I've had a dislocated tibia for a fucking week because I can't get it back into socket and I can't afford to go over and have him put it in socket. So yes, United States, we get denied care all the time. I've been denied surgeries. I've been denied care at ERs. Yeah. And the only way that people like us get it is because there are, at least in my case, there are hemophilia chapters in every state that sit on millions of dollars at a time that are earmarked in case a whole bunch of us go sick at once. I'm really jealous because no one even knows Ehlers-Danlos, like, at all. We are the orphan disease. And there was one specialist in California, one, and it took me three years to get an appointment with him. Mm, it was uh, insane. But I've kidnapped you for almost two hours. That's, uh, you're, that's uh, This is not kidnapping. This is willing. Okay, because like I, I am like feeling like you might be Patty Hearst right now, and I. Like... That would imply that that there was an objection at the forefront of this. <laughs> I, I... No, I would I would talk to you all day. I actually have to go and eat something pretty soon. Um, but I really love talking to you. Is there anything you want to plug and make sure you send me links so that I can set the buttons up on the show notes so okay. everyone can go and grab your music. I would like to plug uh, a documentary uh, made by Hemophiliacs. It's called. Uh, it, it is about. Essentially, it is it is a documentary about uh, a hemophiliac named Chris Bombardier who uh, climbed the seven summits. He climbed Mount Everest, uh, and in doing so, uh, the documentary is an effort to sort of showcase how hemophilia is treated across the world. And, and sort of the, you know, like, I've got it really good here in America. In a lot of other countries, it's it's not so great. Um, it, it, it really, they, it's very third world everywhere else. And uh, the documentary is called Bombardier Blood. 
it was spearheaded by Chris Bombardier himself, as well as uh, a hemophiliac in the L.A. area uh, named Patrick Lynch, and he is uh, he's, he's our hemo in media. He runs a company called Believe Limited, which is a media company that does a lot for the bleeding disorders community. We have another uh, another one um, called uh, about mental health, but the big one is Bombardier Blood. Uh, so I would plug that. Alex Borstein was quite the champion of that movie as well. Um, so to anyone listening, if you're looking to uh, see something incredible from a Spoonie, uh, I would absolutely say that uh, sticking a needle into a vein and infusing it at such a height and scaling a fucking mountain is is something that as a child I never thought we'd be capable of doing. So in that way, uh, go witness mankind's triumph over blood and the heartwarming affirmation of the can-do American spirit inside us all. Wow. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say that that, you know, beyond anything, I, I, you can find my music on Spotify under Max Feinstein, which uh, there will be graciously provided um, and uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to uh, speak about my disorder and to speak about my work. Oh my gosh. I like, seriously, come on anytime. <laughs> this is so much fun. And thank you for randomly asking to go live with me when I was lonely and bored. <laughs> hey, uh, through, uh, through sharing, we embolden ourselves and we embolden us all. Uh, that's that's a beautiful one to end on. I will I will stop it there. Um, thank you everyone for listening. This is Monica Michelle with Explicitly Sick. We are a podcast network. Invisible Not Broken is a network now. Um, so if you like this, subscribe to Explicitly Sick. Uh, it's kind of crazy times. So be kind, be gentle, and in whatever way it looks like to you, be a badass. <laughs>